Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. I am Mike Anderson, and this is Jasmine Gray. And we are here with with Dr. Kathleen Reddy, who has a very extensive and impressive career. She is an internationally recognized breast cancer expert. She's the author of The End of Breast Cancer, A Virus, and The Hope for a Vaccine. Mm -hmm. She's the founder and medical director of the Breast Service at Clara Moss Medical Center, founder and president of Breast Health and Healing, which is her private practice here in New Jersey, founder and executive director of the Breast Health and Healing Foundation and creator of the ongoing Pink Virus Project. Yeah, that is pretty impressive. Um, she also has been internationally recognized and in part uh, to creating an international breast service, one that would bring the most innovative breast cancer treatments and prevention modalities to women in emerging countries. In 2006, she was invited by the Royal Family of Kuwait to create a breast service at the Royal Hyatt Hospital. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. yes. In 2007, she received a grant from WHO to begin a mammogram screening program in Uganda. In 2008, she earned her first international master's for health leadership at McGill University and established the Breast Health and Healing Foundation, the first and only nonprofit devoted to the discovery of causes of breast cancer and primary prevention of the disease. Wow, it just, you've accomplished so much. This is really amazing um and she also produced a film about the breast cancer virus it's time to answer the question it was nominated best film of the year by rethink breast cancer and i think that about covers the majority of it is there anything else you want to add with regard to breast cancer i think that sums it up okay <laughs> okay wow and there's a lot more too <laughs> All right, so is there, let's start off with breast cancer. Okay. Okay, so being a breast cancer, you know, expert, mm -hmm. um, we're seeing, you know, high cases and rates. Right. Um, especially with, you know, everything that's going on now. What, what would you like to say to our audience, you know, um, mm -hmm. in regards to health and, you know, especially with the pandemic and, and we're seeing a lot of other, you know, mm -hmm. diseases and other, you know, uh, rates for mm. vi other viruses. We're seeing, we're actually seeing a high rate of a lot of things. We're seeing hepatitis come back. We're seeing, right. you know. Well, well, in regards to breast cancer, I, th mm -hmm. I think it's important to, y you refer to it as a, um, a virus, the breast cancer virus. Right. Right. So right. is that, is that like a play on words or is that is it actually is <laughs> no, it considered a virus, virus? There there's is, a virus okay there's that, a breast cancer virus uh when do you think it was discovered this uh, breast cancer virus how long ago 2020 take a guess jasmine <laughs> I, I don't oh my gosh yeah. 70s 1936 oh wow oh okay 1936 the breast cancer virus was discovered. And for many decades following that, uh, there was robust interest and research into the viral cause of human breast cancer. When in the 1970s, uh, 
the nation, uh, specifically Mary Lasker, <laughs> um, coercing President Nixon into declaring a war on cancer, um, the question of the causes of cancer were pretty much swept aside because the belief and the promise was that we would cure cancer in five years. So who cares what causes it? We're going we're gonna to cure it. And so the question of whether or not this breast cancer virus in mice, which was found in rats and in monkeys, and has, had been found in humans, uh, whether that was causing human breast cancer was no longer important to the scientific establishment. And the medical establishment, they just um, charged headlong into treatment, secure in the knowledge that they would be able to cure breast cancer and all cancers. And what happened was, as you know, they didn't really cure any cancers except for a few of the childhood leukemias, which were very successful. Um, and the incidence of breast cancer increased, and the incidence of all the cancers increased. <clears throat> so the war on cancer was a failure, but it has never been declared a failure because the entire medical establishment and a lot of money, federal money uh, and pharmaceutical money and private money, um, was thrown on the table in the hopes of finding a cure. And the question of the role of a virus in causing breast cancer was sidelined. I had done my fellowship at Memorial Sun Kettering. I was the first fellow on the breast service there and finished in 1995 and considered myself to be very well trained and I was convinced that I had trained with the best people in the world. And it was <clears throat> maybe eight years later when I was doing my international masters for health leadership at McGill that I discovered a paper that had recently been presented uh, on the subject of this breast cancer virus. And I was like, what, you're kidding me? <laughs> a virus that, that thought never crossed my mind. But of course, we knew that a virus caused cervical cancer, so maybe a virus could cause breast cancer, but I couldn't figure out how. So I got a copy of the paper, and I read through it. It was by James Holland, who was at Mount Sinai at the time. And the paper was very interesting, and I went to the bibliography, and I said, oh, well, this can't be the first paper that he ever published on this subject. Let's see what else he published. So I called my, my librarian, Arlene Mangino, and I said, Arlene, would you please pull all of the papers that Holland has written on the breast cancer virus and anything else you can find? Just do a literature search, okay? And she came back to my office, I'm going to say maybe three hours later, and she had a stack. She had like a a hundred years worth of research on the breast wow. cancer virus. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I, I was like, wait a second. Was I asleep? Was I having a petty mal seizure when I was at Memorial Sloan <laughs> Kettering and they were discussing the breast cancer virus? And I looked at my textbooks and there was nothing there. And I looked at the textbooks of pathology and there was nothing there. How can there be a hundred years of research on the breast cancer virus and it's not in these textbooks? That's crazy. Well, yeah. Well, so I decided, okay, well, let me take this logically and I went through the literature chronologically way back to the beginning <laughs> when Abby Lathrop who was uh, a retired school teacher uh, in Massachusetts um, who had a mouse farm because people were buying mice at the time as pets and uh, people from Harvard came looking for mice to do research on cancer and she said, well, if you're interested in breast cancer, I got these mice that get breast cancer. And they were like, what? 
So that's how the breast cancer virus was discovered in these mice that in were mice. raised as pets. How did she know oh, that they wow. had breast cancer? Because she was a smart woman and she could tell. They had lumps in their breast and they, wow. would, they would die of metastatic disease. It's a fascinating story. So that's in my first book, The End of Breast Cancer, The Virus and Hope for Vaccine. Well, in any Which case, we'll have in the description <clears throat> to buy, by the way. So we, we have more and more and more evidence of a breast cancer virus. The, the National Institutes of Health start doing research on the breast cancer virus. But as I say, Mary Lasker and Solomon Garb got together and they figured that we could just cure cancer in five years and who cares about a breast cancer virus? So it was shoved to the side. Um, and the more I looked into the research, the more cogent the research and compelling the research became. And I thought, when I get done doing the master's program at McGill, I need to get behind this question of the breast cancer virus. And so I tried to do that, but I was up against, you know, a very entrenched fortress wow. that wanted nothing to do with discovering that a virus causes breast cancer. <clears throat> However, of the seven criteria that you need to meet in order to prove that a virus causes a cancer, because you can't do a randomized study. You can't, like, take a 1,000 people and get half of them the virus and other half a sugar pill. You know, you have to go at this by different means. And so there are criteria for determining that a virus causes cancer. And of the seven criteria, six have been checked off with regard to this virus. But nevertheless, nobody seems to be interested. Wow. So when you ask the question, do I have an opinion about why we've got an increase in the incidence of breast cancer in this country? It's multifactorial. I think that the virus is a really important part of it. And unless we address the question of the breast cancer virus, we're going to get nowhere fast. But the other thing has to do with female sex hormones. They stimulate the virus. So we know that by and large men don't get breast cancer because they're not making the hormones that interact with the virus. Okay. So should we be seeing a, uh, an increase in breast cancer in men with the gender debate when they're handing out hormones to men? Possibly you would see that. Possibly. I don't think that there will be enough men who will buy that. <laughs> okay. We hope. Okay. Um, to be able to have a large enough study over a long enough period of time. Okay. okay. I think we have enough women with breast cancer, and I sure. think we have enough evidence of the virus to be able to say, if we want to answer the question, does a virus cause breast cancer in women, we have what we need to answer the, the answer question. Is. The question is, do we really have um, the motivation, um, and can we get the compliance of orthodox medicine to answer this question. So far, the answer is no. Wow. And the other thing is that you have to have is a genetic predisposition. So those are the three things that Bittner, who discovered the virus in 1936, said there are three factors to get breast cancer. One is that you're a woman. Two is that you have a genetic predisposition. And three is that you got the virus. If you take the virus out of the equation, the other two are not going to be sufficient. Oh, so you have to have the virus in order to this get is it. The, this is the hypothesis. The hypothesis. If you, and we know if you remove HPV from the equation of cervical cancer and head and neck cancer, you don't get cervical cancer. Right? Oh, wow. Right? You don't get cervical cancer. Well, the, I was going to ask that. It was, that was going to be a question. Like, I know like there's different types of cancer. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know the difference. Like, I don't know. Like, mm -hmm. I think there's... I'm, I'm clearly there's a difference between like uh, pancreatic cancer and breast cancer yeah. in just like the actual cancer itself like I don't I, I don't that's all I know <laughs> okay. and that's like 
is that why you could get like are they connected certain cancers are connected in the body correct i mean is it through like the lymph system or something like i don't i'm trying to go through like a figured out yeah so the kind of cancer that you might get in a particular organ is to some extent dependent on that particular organ so the pancreas is a completely different organ from the breast right Uh, but the breast is very similar to the prostate in many ways but you know neither the breast or the prostate except for (laughs) in some kind of barroom jokes are related to the brain, right? <laughs> okay. So the kind of cancer that you would get in the brain is not necessarily the kind of cancer that you get in the skin, although right. maybe so. Okay. okay. So it's what we would say is tissue-specific. So cancers okay. can be tissue-specific in terms of how they manifest. They might have the same origin, so that the breast cancer virus we now know is responsible for lymphoma, okay. maybe responsible for prostate cancer, Um might be responsible for some cases of endometrial cancer. So the viruses can, depending on the tissue that they're in, or that they can get in, um, can cause cancers. That's so interesting. Yeah, so it, it, it ends up being very complicated. But to make it simple, the hypothesis, and I think this is a good hypothesis, if you remove the breast cancer virus from the equation, you will very likely remove breast cancer from the conversation. How do you do that? Well, you would have to complete the study, you know, check off number seven on the list, which is not difficult to do. You just have to have the will to do it. Uh, and then you make a real, legitimate, old-fashioned vaccine. Vaccine, okay. A real one, not a pretend one. Got it. Okay. Just like they did for HPV. Okay. Right? So we saw there was demonstration over 30 years that HPV causes cervical cancer. Um, that was not fully embraced for a long time, but finally, when the pharmaceutical industry discovered that they could vaccinate more people and make more money with an HPV vaccine than they could treating cervical cancer because it was not that common, right? We're going to make a money decision here. Vaccinate everybody against cervical cancer versus make money treating cervical cancer. There's more money over here. Oh, okay. Now, now we believe you that HPV causes cervical cancer. Here comes the vaccine, right? So we know after the vaccine was introduced, the incidence of cervical cancer has fallen dramatically. There you go. So we could do the same thing, I think, with breast cancer. Not that I think we're ready to make a vaccine tomorrow, but I think that we're close enough to be able to complete the research on the breast cancer virus so that if we are successful in linking this breast cancer virus to human breast cancer, we can move on a vaccine and be done with it. And at least go through the proper trials, I'd imagine. Yeah, Because exactly. I feel like the vaccine yeah. that we got for COVID was, yeah. they're right. still testing it. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> I mean, to be honest. So, right. yeah, which I think is, uh, I think that would be, that would be right. huge. I mean, that so, would, it's just, it's, it, so that would, ultimately that vaccine is a cure for cancer. It's not a cure. You don't get the cancer. You don't have to cure it. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It's, the, right, it's exactly. what we call primary prevention. Okay. Primary. You don't get it. You're done. Okay. That's Here's great. a vaccine against uh, smallpox. You're done. You don't get smallpox. We don't have to cure smallpox. You don't get smallpox. Got it. Okay. So it's a matter of the vocabulary, but the vocabulary is very important. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I will sense. just say this, that my experience of researching the breast cancer virus and researching viruses in general um, helped inform what I experienced and what I saw and how I understood what happened with COVID. Got it. So even though it's like, oh, she's a breast cancer surgeon, what makes her so smart about COVID? Well, 
working on that virus for so many years and understanding the mechanism of viral infection and so forth sort of teed me up for what was happening. I didn't know that a virus was responsible or or at least, well, I guess it would be more than 33% responsible for getting breast cancer. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that it was a virus I, I was driven. On, I, so I, I would imagine Most a lot of people, people aren't. Yeah, I would say a Most lot of people, people don't know that. So just yeah. hearing that, I think, yeah. is... Uh, yeah, it's very interesting, and it's... Right. You know, but there's more money in treating breast cancer and diagnosing sure. breast cancer than in a vaccine. Well, that's so it. well isn't the that, there's no money in a cure. Cancer. There's no money in a cure. It was opposite with, with cervical cancer. It wasn't, there was more money in vaccinating against HPV than there was in treating cervical cancer. That's not the case with breast cancer. Breast cancer is a big business. If you make a vaccine that prevents breast cancer, right? That's maybe a billion dollars if you're lucky, maybe 2 billion if you're lucky. They're making 20 billion a year diagnosing and treating it. Yeah. Okay. So if you got, if, if we're making the money decisions here, you know, in the executive suite, we're like, forget the virus. Yeah. Yeah. We're not interested in the virus. We want the disease. Thank you very much about that. It's pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm blown away right say. now. I'm absolutely like, blown terrible. away. I mean, that sounds like it just sounds like murder. <laughs> I mean, to be yeah. honest, yeah. right? Well, so then that begins to fit in with what we're seeing with regard to COVID and right. vaccines, right? Right. Because if they're willing to allow you to die, they're willing to torment you, so that they might make a profit at your expense. Well, they're not going to stop because they're just not going to stop. I just feel like they, the they turned money. on like a psychological faucet with this though because and i and maybe maybe i just i don't know i don't remember the psychological warfare with uh with breast, with can- with breast cancer but like this is i mean they're turning families on family members oh, they're turning right, right. you know based on where you yes. get your information and it's just everyone's right in their own i mean they're willing to to to, to split a family just to say that they're right or out of out of fear that like Someone might give me COVID, so I'm gonna, you know, don't come to my house on Christmas or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And they're breaking families up. I don't, yeah. I don't remember that in in my lifetime with anything else. Maybe AIDS, right. but not even. I don't even think it was that. Not it was that even. Bad. It was more of a fear with AIDS because nobody knew really. Right. That's what <clears throat> I remember with you know. Well, it um, actually was very divisive because it became a sexual preference issue, not sexual identity, because. People know what sex they are, okay? Let's just have that on the record, okay? Dr. Reddy is going on the record. People know what sex they are. Okay? Most every doctor yeah. no, they agrees do. with that. <laughs> yeah, they know what sex they are. Yeah. Now, they might be confused, especially during adolescence, uh, as to the object of their sexual gratification. So in adolescence, there, there can be maybe 18 months or two years where, you know, Boys might be attracted to boys and girls might be attracted to girls, but the heterosexuals lock in right. usually sometime during adolescence. And if you're heterosexual, you're like, I like you as a girlfriend. I'm really interested in that guy. Same thing, boys. About 10 or 15% of the population um, are what we call gay. And the object of their sexual desire is the same sex. So their sexual gratification is of the same sex. Right. But they're very clear. If they're a man or a woman, that's not called into question. Right. Yeah, I'm right. a man and I like men. I'm a woman and I like women, okay? Or the rest of us, the majority, okay, we're male and female and we like each other. 
Um, so the question of sexual identity has been thrown into the hopper here as a means of shredding the fabric of society. Yes. Pure and simple. I agree. Yeah, uh, yeah we'll take it. So the other thing that we wanted to get into, I'm sure, and I know we talked about it, is um, how... It seems like recently we, we're, we're tying everything back to uh, COVID mm -hmm. um, and vaccines. And basically on what we mm -hmm. just talked about, it's fair to say that everything is tied together. Um, we kind of see how that goes. Mm -hmm. And we brought this out um, because I think it's really important to note that you mm -hmm. wrote the book um, Validating Row. Was it called? It, yeah, I wrote a book called the viability the viability, the viability right. of row of row that was a, right. that makes a lot of sense because it's right. about viability um <laughs> mm -hmm. sorry um and i thought it was a brilliant uh i haven't read it yet and i, I do plan on reading it um but just the synopsis that you gave me and the synopsis that i read about it i thought it was it was a brilliant um breakdown of of why row should be overturned um and it's correct me if i'm wrong it's based on viability of the fetal viability would it be considered right. fetus at that time or would it be the baby so if i could uh, redirect the conversation very briefly sure um because my involvement in the anti-abortion pro-life movement followed my um or occurred simultaneously with my experience of the COVID pandemic and actually the two of them, the pandemic and issues related to abortion collided to the point where they were related. I could see how they were related. So let me tell you what my experience of COVID was first and then we'll backtrack and I will pick up the Perfect. thread of my experience with the, the abortion issue here in New Jersey and then the punchline, how they're related. So I also, I don't think you mentioned this, but I also served on the leadership council of the Harvard School of Public Health. And I was there in Harvard during the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa. So I was quite abreast with what was happening during that outbreak and how threatening it was and the WHO's response. And one of my colleagues, Joanne Liu, had just been named president of Medicine Sans Frontieres, and that this was her first project, oh my goodness. Um, and another of my colleagues at McGill was working at WHO, she's still there. Um, another of my colleagues uh, at McGill had been in Toronto and was in charge of the first SARS outbreak uh, in Toronto. So I've always been interested in pandemics. I kind of find them interesting. I watched the movie Contagion very closely um, and noticed that Lori Garrett uh, was the chief scientific advisor for that movie and she's the head scientist in charge of viruses at the Council of Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C. And she had written the book Virus X and I had read that. So I was sort of up, you know, I always had like radar out there for pandemics and viruses. When in 
I'm going to say it couldn't have been more than the second week in January of 2020. There was news of an outbreak of some kind of respiratory illness, lethal respiratory illness, in Wuhan. And I was like, oh, really? And I started to pay attention, and I saw what was happening, like we all did. And I thought, this is it. This is the big one. Ebola wasn't the big one. Spanish flu was the last big one, 1918. This is the big one. And I was very concerned. And then, of course, Wuhan led to Wubei, so Wubei province was shut down. And once again, the WHO was dragging its feet, you know, was this really going to be a pandemic or an outbreak and blah, blah, blah. And the news was, okay, it's a novel coronavirus, similar to SARS-CoV-1, the original SARS, similar to MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus. Okay, this is SARS-CoV-2. I thought, this is wicked. Well, I sat back and waited for, you know, the movie Contagion to basically unroll. And what happened next was that there was a big outbreak in Milan. Right? Remember that? Yeah. Big, yeah. big outbreak yeah. in yeah. Italy. Yep. Okay. That did not surprise me. It's like, okay. Very shortly thereafter, there's the big outbreak in New York City. And here's Governor Cuomo with his off-Broadway show. <laughs> asking for ventilators and opening up the Javits Center, and it was awful, awful, awful. And I was like, like everyone else, I was, oh, this is going to be bad. This is going to be bad. But then I was like, wait a second. It doesn't make sense that you would have a big outbreak in Wuhan and a big outbreak in Milan and a big outbreak in New York, but there's nothing to speak of going on in Washington, D.C. It's a big international city. Yeah, they got yeah. millions of people, okay? Right. Two huge airports. I mean, they had COVID. All the cities in Chicago had COVID. But they were not being inundated the way New York City was being inundated. That did not make sense. So let me give you an analogy. If you have a bowl of white icing and you add some food coloring to it, say two drops of red food coloring, and you start mixing it, very quickly the whole bowl was pink. Right. Right? There are no more spots left. It's all pink. Well, respiratory viruses, true contagious viruses, should spread around the world just that way. And in the movie Contagion, it does. Hmm. But that's not the way this virus was spreading, was it? No. And I kept looking at Washington, D.C. I'm like, there's nothing in Langley, the CIA, there's nothing at Fort Meade, NSA, Capitol Hill. They're not being, you know, decimated by this virus. What in the world is going on? This didn't make sense. At the same time, one of my neighbors... Uh, who does clinical trials for drug companies, she said, oh, it's a leak. She said, there's a BSL-4 lab in Wuhan. She said, it's a leak. We know that. It's a leak. So what are you talking about? <laughs> wow. She said, oh, yeah, there's a bioweapons lab, <clears throat> BSL-4 lab in Wuhan. Well, I said, well, let me look into that. So I began to, to study that, and that's the paper published in 2014. Wow. 2014, folks. I'm looking at this paper in 2020, and this is the paper in which the people that we know very well now, Anthony Fauci and the Bat Lady. Um, Public enemy number one. as a University of North Carolina, yeah. Chapel Hill. They got together, and they created the spike protein and attached it to the SARS virus, and they published that in Nature Medicine. 
and very proudly discussed what they had done. And I read, as you can see, it's all marked up and yeah. highlighted and underlined and so forth. Um, and I thought, okay, this is a bioweapon. That's what we're dealing with. This is not a novel coronavirus that came out of a fish market. Nobody believes that nonsense. And it's not from pangolins uh, or what have you. That That's nonsense. No. This is a bioweapon that they designed and published in 2014. So, yeah, it came out of the BSL 411 Wuhan. Very little doubt in my mind about that. Do you think it was legitimately leaked? Well, this is the, there or are three possibilities. There are three possibilities. It, it flew out the window, which it could certainly have done. Um, because that BSL-4 lab was pretty leaky. You're talking about the bat. I'm talking about the the BSL-4 lab, okay? Okay. This bioweapons lab, okay, was not secure. Okay. Okay. (laughs) As a matter of fact, when China said that they wanted to build a BSL-4 lab, um, the world was like, no, no, you're China, okay? You're getting way ahead of yourself, okay? (laughs) You're pitching way over your weight here. (laughs) And uh, so, so China partners with France. And France is all very important, you know. <laughs> so China partners with France and say, look, we'll build it together. You come in and you provide the legitimacy to build this BSL for a lab in Wuhan. And then the world will be reassured that we're putting together a safe and secure investigative lab. So they do that. And they take the big picture, they open the facility, and there's the French people out there and the Chinese people out there. And the next week or so, the Chinese throw the French out. Goodbye. Have a nice life. <laughs> okay. Now the oh Chinese are in charge. So when my neighbor said, oh, it's a leak, you know, it was because people knew that these guys didn't know what they were doing. Okay. Right. And, that, and it's very hard. I mean, even at Fort Detrick, it's very hard to have a completely safe BSL-4 lab because the viruses are very small. And by comparison, the cracks in the ceiling are very large. Got it. Okay, so either it it leaked out, or it was released by the Chinese, or it was released by the Americans. Could have been released by someone else, but the first three, it was a leak or it was detonated. Detonated by the Chinese, detonated by the Americans. So I was like, okay, we're dealing with bioweaponry here. And then the epidemiologic map of the world in terms of the outbreaks began to make a little bit more sense because if this was a bioweapon, the bioweapon conceivably could be deployed and targeted like other weapons. And that might explain why you had big outbreaks in strategic Mm -hmm. areas. Sure, that makes sense, yeah. Okay. And, And, yeah, they used people as the... As the uh, the carrier, well, the well, they could have, facilitated. but there's there are probably other ways that you can deploy okay. this weapon. So, and, and I was explaining to Jasmine in, in our pre-interview conversation, the way to think about SARS-CoV-2 is to think of the coronavirus as the missile delivery system, like a Titan missile or whatever, and the spike protein that they designed specifically in 2014 using gain-of-function work, as the warhead. And the warhead is uh, complicated. It's complex in some ways in that there are proteins in the spike protein that are specifically pathogenic for the upper respiratory tract and the lungs, and there are aspects of the spike protein that cause blood clotting and cardiovascular events and so forth, strokes, 
But then it appears that they also added proteins that they Legoed, like Lego set, that they Legoed in from HIV, and proteins that they Legoed in that are cancer proteins. And that becomes the spike protein. So you might become infected or you might have been targeted in some way with SARS-CoV-2, but really the weapon is the spike protein. Mm -hmm. And you might die relatively quickly of the results of the spike protein's effect on the lungs or the heart or the kidneys. And you might recover from that and you might then succumb to an autoimmune collapse or a human immunodeficiency collapse like we saw with AIDS or you could get cancers, the longer-term consequence, all built into the warhead. Okay, so here we are with my now understanding that this looks like we're in the middle of bio-warfare here, okay? Um, And if you look at the epidemiologic map of the world, it does not look like a respiratory virus spreading around, like dye in a bowl of icing. This does look like it's being targeted in some ways. Well... Not long thereafter, um, the leadership in this country and around the world said, not to worry. They're showing you pictures Mm -hmm. (laughs) that make you worry to death. You think, oh, we're going (laughs) to die any day now. And people were. I mean, members of my family so far, they shouldn't laugh. It was terrible. We were scared to death. Now we were in the movie Contagion, you know, not just watching it. But the announcement was, don't worry, we're going to have vaccines. And I thought, Time out, folks. How do you know? Time out, folks. Let me tell you what. I know from the work that was done with SARS back in Toronto and with MERS that scientists were not able to make vaccines against SARS viruses. I knew that. And a lot of people knew that. Why? Because every time they tried to make a vaccine against a SARS virus, MERS is its first cousin, the animals died. They all died. You couldn't do it. It's related to something called antibody-dependent enhancement. That's kind of technical. We may or may not want to go into it. Suffice it to say, you can't make a vaccine against SARS (laughs) without killing the animals. So you never had a vaccine against SARS for people. But now we have the announcement, you know, from Fauci and all these people, don't worry about a thing. We've got vaccines coming. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're going to kill everybody, you know? You guys, do you not, what is going on here? Okay, I'm, I'm now wondering what is really going on. Um, at the same time that they're all gung-ho, and of course so many people were afraid, oh, I'll get a vaccine, anything, okay? And I said to myself, I'm not getting that vaccine. <laughs> There's no way I'm going near that vaccine. That's what I said, too. Yeah, me. No way. <laughs> I mean, but I knew, I knew scientifically why, no way. And at the same time, reports began to emerge from, Africa and from India that old time drugs, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were effective in treating and preventing COVID and preventing deaths from COVID. And the data that were beginning to emerge were very compelling. There was an old fashioned internist down in South Africa, um, very smart internist who said goodbye to his wife, took a couple of hydroxychloroquine, set up a tent in his front yard, and took care of COVID patients 10 miles from the middle of nowhere in Africa, okay, hundreds of them. 
And he gave them hydroxychloroquine, and he gave them steroids, and he gave them antihistamines, he gave them aspirin. He really sorted this out in a tent in his front yard. He did not lose a single patient. Okay? Wow. India had a big outbreak, and they were like, we're going to give these people ivermectin, a couple of days' worth of ivermectin, this, that, and the other. Completely eradicated COVID from India. This crazy. huge province yeah. in India. Okay? Yeah, that's crazy. Now, if you look at the map of the world, you will see that Africa was virtually spared from COVID. Now, I had done work in Africa. I had been to Africa. I had climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Wow. Had gotten oxygen toxicity. I was very hypoxic at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> And I knew that in Africa, they don't have any healthcare system to speak of. God love them. They don't. But what they have is they have pharmacies where you can go down and you get a tablet. They don't call them pills. They call them tablets. So everybody goes down and they get a tablet. They get their favorite tablet. They get the hydroxychloroquine. They get the ivermectin. And so they just started using it. They were like, if they feel sick, they take ivermectin. They take hydroxychloroquine. It was like a Africa pro- was completely treatment. spared. Completely spared from COVID, virtually completely spared from COVID, and they've got no healthcare system. Okay, I thought Africa was going to be wiped off the face of the earth as a nation, you know, as a continent, and no, they skated COVID because they had hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. We heard from here, okay, FDA, oh, you can't use it. No, oh, it hasn't been tested. Oh, it could be dangerous. It's worse medicine. I'm like, I don't know how they could say it hasn't been tested. That's insane. Well, I thought <coughs> they're trying to kill us. At this point, I'm like, this is bioweaponry, and these guys in Washington are trying to kill us. They're going to give us these vaccines. They're not going to let us use ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and all the rest of it. They want us dead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They yeah. Definitely do. I've Without been a doubt. That. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And as time goes on, you and to just to see the direction with medicine and and you know the scare tactics of what's going on it, yeah. it, i think it's pretty obvious for for the most part that they really are trying to kill us and they've been very successful yes. and they're going to be even more successful as time goes on unfortunately because this is a ticking time bomb i describe it as a mass casualty yeah this is we're now dealing with a mass casualty okay yeah. so yeah. yeah so that's where I was, you know, sort of in the middle of 2020, the end of 2020, I'm like, we're in the middle of bio-warfare, and the guys who are coming to get us are our own people, our own healthcare system, okay? Um, well, okay, so that, we're just going on, and I'm, I'm taking care of my patients with COVID, and then I start taking care of patients with COVID, and so forth, anyway. So I'm at church one Sunday. This is now beginning of 2021. <clears throat> I'm at Mass at St. Vincent's, and I pick up the Diocese of Patterson Catholic newspaper called The Beacon. And there's an article in there about the abortion bill that is being considered in New Jersey, being heavily promoted by our Governor Phil Murphy. And among other things, it would require that all healthcare workers. I'm a healthcare worker, <laughs> would have to perform abortions regardless of their conscience. I would be required to perform abortions or lose my license to practice medicine. This really? was something that Phil Murphy was trying to push oh, yes. with all practitioners? Absolutely. Right in the bill. Right in S3030. Okay. And I thought, this can't be true. I couldn't get home. I was like, 
<laughs> End the mass. I got to get home. I have to look into this. So I look into this, and sure enough, I re- I pull up the bill, and I'm like, you're kidding me. I see he wants full term abortion. I see he wants to be free for the women who are seeking abortion. They're not going to pay a dime. No copay, no coinsurance, no deductible, nothing. The insurance companies would have to cover the cost, which means that my copay would go up, okay? You know, moving the money downstream back to the consumers. Um, and I would be required to perform abortions. I said, no, that's never going to happen. So I began to find where I could throw myself to try and thwart this bill. And I got involved in the anti-abortion pro-life movement, a lot of groups in New Jersey. Now let me back up and say that I was around uh, in 1973 when Roe was decided, and I actually thought it was a good thing. At the time I said, now women will not be forced to have children they do not want, because that's a dreadful, dreadful thing for a woman to be forced to have a child she does not want. It's not good for her, certainly not good for the child. So at the time I was like, okay, well at least women will not be forced to have children they don't want. And that's about as much as I thought, even though I didn't think it was right. And at the time, uh, a little bit later, uh, in 1980, I was in the physician assistant program because I was a PA before I went to medical school. So I was in the PA program and part of the clerkship that I had to do uh, was to witness an abortion. I thought, that's weird. Why do I have to do that? Okay, whatever. You know, I want to be a PA. I'll do what they say. So there I was in the room with the woman who was having an abortion. Now, it wasn't there between her legs. I didn't see it. I was up by her head, mostly. And the machine started going, and I was very upset. I was very afraid. I was, like, hanging on to the table to steady myself. And I am very hard-bitten when it comes to trauma. I worked the trauma <coughs> service down in Newark. I mean, you could come in with your arm blown off and bullet holes through it. Yeah. Nothing phased me. But I was holding on to the table while this woman was having an abortion. Well, do you know what, um, how far along she was? She was very early. Okay. But I think, in retrospect, I think what was happening is I was witness to a murder. And I was actually witness to a murder, not thinking uh-huh. it through, but there I was. So I didn't give abortion much thought for the next 50 years (laughs) until I was sitting in church and I was like, you're not going to tell me I have to perform an abortion. So I got involved with the pro-life movement and then I thought, well, let me find out what's going on with abortion in New Jersey because Murphy and his wife, you know, Tammy Faye, whatever, um, (laughs) they were promoting abortion as if it were the Emancipation Proclamation. It was going to save women from every injustice known to man and then some. So I said, well, let me just see what's going on with abortion, first of all, in New Jersey. And I discovered that New Jersey performs, per capita, more abortions than any other state in the country, by a factor of two. That is amazing. Who, what, that, do you know what the second unreal. is? I don't remember. I think it might be New York. New York? I, think I would imagine New York. New York or California. Yeah. But if you put, How did you find out that information? Because it's in the internet. You can find it. It's all there. It's very hard for to, so when I start to look into, you know, when when I try to research certain topics and stuff, you know, a lot of pages are shadow banned and and it's hard to really, you know, pull up information. You really have to know what you're, yes, how to dig, you have to know what to, you know. That's true. 
it, it's that's true. We were under the impression that you were shadow banned. Yeah. Right earlier, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure I am. Yeah, absolutely. Because I put in the title of your book. I put in the title of your book and I started to, you know, uh, type in your name and nothing was coming up. Yeah, even when I got into Ruddy, you know, and and I'm typing it in. I was like, wow. Every other, yeah. Oh, congratulations to me. It means you're doing something. uh, Yeah, that's a badge of honor. Okay. So where are we now? So you were talking about New Jersey. So, okay. I'm like, New Jersey does twice as many abortions as as the second runner-up. So I said to myself, this is not an abortion bill. This bill is not here to address an unmet need. How can there be a need for abortions in the state that does more than anybody else? So then I thought, okay, well, this is the home of Tony Soprano. So this must be a jobs bill. (laughs) (laughs) It's got to be a jobs bill. So quick, quick, quick. Okay, I know what I'm looking for. How much money can you make performing an abortion you net about five hundred dollars so i i did a little just this arithmetic and i said okay if we increase the number of abortions in new jersey by 20 percent, not that we need to but let's just say we do uh, so by 20 percent, that's x number multiplied by five hundred dollars is the profit okay what does that come to it came to about three million dollars i said this is not a job spell you would not to go to all this trouble to have this big abortion bill so that you could what give your friends and neighbors and relatives you know three million dollars it's not a jobs bill so i said where's the money because i was raised during watergate where is the money here and then i remembered because remember you know i was my did not have a radar dish open to abortion issues but i did remember there was something about planned parenthood some videotapes and some kind of bragging about using body parts and performing abortions in such a way that they could optimize the extraction, harvesting this tissue. And I thought, I wonder if the money is in fetal tissue. Well, Planned Parenthood was very adamant in this Daleiden Planned Parenthood case that they don't sell fetal tissue. They can't sell it. It's against the law. Yeah, right. Okay. So it's against the law. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to New Jersey. We can, we can work around that. <laughs> Okay, so, um, and it's true that uh, Planned Parenthood um, can only pay the guy in the unmarked truck, you know, um, maybe $100 to pick up the fetal tissue. So there's not a lot of money changing hands there. But downstream, downstream, how much money is made? So remember I asked the question, right? I discovered it's very, very difficult to get the price list for fetal tissue. Try and find that on the internet. <laughs> it took me a while, but I did get a citation you from the did. New York, I did from the New York Times. Oh my report in the New York Times, which is how I discovered that a tiny, tiny, tiny little vial of fetal liver stem cells goes for twenty thousand dollars. <throat> the New York Times actually posted a price list. They quoted that. So somehow behind the scenes they got a price list. Good luck getting the price list, okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's hard to get the price list. But there was that one item, and I thought, okay, that's where the money is. That's where the money is. That's what's behind this abortion bill. And what is probably a, behind so much in terms of pushing for abortions. So then I was like, okay, new page. How much money does the National Institutes of Health spend? on fetal tissue research. Hundreds of millions of dollars. 
Okay. How much does the FDA spend? I have no idea. Are the pharmaceutical industry? <laughs> I have no clue. DARPA, the NSA, no question, they're doing fetal tissue research. Now, set this huge demand for fetal tissue research, stem cells, you know, they're marketed, oh, they're going to solve every problem on demand. Yeah, right. Against the fact that the number of abortions in this country has decreased by at least a third in the past 10 years because of the demographics. Women are not getting pregnant in the same numbers as they used to get pregnant. And therefore, there are fewer unwanted pregnancies and fewer abortions. So we have, friends, what everyone now understands is a supply chain problem, right? We have a huge demand for fetal tissue, huge. All the universities, drug companies, the government, everybody wants fetal tissue. We don't have enough fetal tissue. The price is going up. What we need are more abortions. So if New Jersey becomes where you go to get an abortion and it's free to get an abortion, then... Can I just inter, uh, interject? Yeah. So free abortions, who is paying for them? Who do you think is going to pay for them? The insured, right? I mean, right, like, the insured, yeah. The yeah. Insured, well, so the, what Murphy, and he had a hard time doing it. He wants to do it now. He wants the insurance companies to pick up the tab. So it's free for the woman, okay? She doesn't have to pay for the abortion. The insurance company must cover the abortion. Well, now, when was the last time the insurance company absorbed the cost without passing it on? <laughs> Never. Okay? <laughs> Never, ever. Yeah, not in this universe. Now, no. what if somebody doesn't have insurance? Well, then they'll just pay cash on the barrel head for it. Okay. Okay. But the wow. idea is that women will find insurance or Medicaid or Medicare, okay? So tax dollars or... So it's free right. to her. Okay. So come to New Jersey... Then, another factoid, which is important. Biden gets into office. There had been a ban on federal funding of Planned Parenthood's operations overseas. Well, I looked. Can you import fetal tissue into this country? Yes, you can. You can bring it right into the customs office. So it wasn't a stretch for me to imagine that when Biden started funding Planned Parenthood overseas that that was a way to import fetal tissue and help relieve the supply chain. This is like gas coming out of Russia. And possibly, I mean, if, if, if Planned Parenthood went downhill here, they still have overseas Planned Parenthood. I mean, I'm sure that would be a supply away. chain yeah, problem. Su- yeah, okay, right. You know, how do you get toilet paper? How yeah. do you get gas? Okay. <laughs> what, my, I, my question um, in listening to this is, is there a premium uh, like we were saying, that the, the cost of like what would you say was like a, a tiny little a vial. tiny little vial of, of yeah. liver tissue. Is there a premium on the term that that is? Like, is it the later the better? Well, okay. So the more mature the fetus is, um, the more likely you're going to be able to harvest more valuable material. Okay. So. If you've got a fetus like that's a just amount. like six weeks old, okay, you're going to extract that fetus. It's just going to be a blobby mess, okay? The older the fetus is, the more likely that you're going to be able to get body parts. You'll get lungs and hearts and brain, spinal cord. You'll be able to get pieces that are mature but still growing. So that's valuable that's right. valuable. So is that tissue. why they keep on pushing the later and later term that's what abortions? I think. That's what I think. 
That's my I mean, hypothesis. If you're, you're going to follow the money, I guess that's what That's my hypothesis. Be, yeah. If you're going to get $20,000 five <clears> years ago for a tiny little vial of fetal tissue liver cells, what are you going to get for the brain? Yeah. What are you going to get for the heart? Okay. Remember the movie Wall Street? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know? What did they do? You know? The barbarians at the gate. Great description. They go in. They buy the company. They shred the company. They sell the company for parts. They make money. They buy it for $10. They shred it. They sell it for $50. They're rich. Welcome to Gordon Gecko. I never I never understood the, the, the concept. I mean, I feel like I saw a video a long time ago, and I wish I never saw it, as a matter of fact, mm. of like a late-term abortion. And it mm. was like, it was parts yes. of a child. Like yeah. why? Like I never understood uh, the need to break. Like they were breaking apart the, 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 uh, the baby. Force? Yeah. Because you can't, you know... God and nature, <laughs> same thing, um, put a lock <laughs> on the womb until the womb is ready to be opened oh, and deliver okay, the child. Okay, 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 yeah. And so you need to dilate the cervix. We don't have time to dilate the cervix. So um, partial birth abortions were banned so that you couldn't induce a delivery of a live child and then kill it as it was coming through the birth canal. Oh, so I'm glad it, they allowed you not to commit murder. Okay, so this is what they do instead. Okay, how, well, how do they get around worse. it? Yeah. How do they get around it? Because they're, these late-term abortions are all partial birth. Yeah. you got the cervix, which is locked tight, okay? So you can try and physically, you know, dilate it, open it up a little bit, but then you've got to tear off a leg, tear off a leg, tear off a head, what have you. And you have to do it in such a way, and this is what the Planned Parenthood people do, you have to do it in such a way that, you know, you're like preserving the stuff that you really want. Okay, so how, how do they do yeah, that? Yeah, that, that, that's what I felt was happening in, the, in this in So this how video. do they do that? I figured out how they did it. I don't know. Okay. They kill the baby first. They kill the baby first. So how do they do that? They inject the baby itself with Potassium chloride, we know that from watching all the, you know, spy movies or whatever. That will kill you quickly. Potassium chloride stops the heart. They kill the baby. So then when they start pulling the baby out, it's not a partial birth abortion because the baby's dead. baby's dead, yeah. Okay, we're good. We're clean, okay. You know, the law. But would that, would that ruin the no. the harvesting at all? No, because they, they move, they'll move quickly. Oh, okay. They move quickly. Um, and then, or, or you can inject digitalis, a poison, into the amniotic fluid and wait, you know, tick, 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 for the baby to die. So you kill the child, and that way, legally, this is not a partial birth abortion. Now you're just tearing this child apart limb from limb. Now, where does this whole story converge with the pandemic? Well, there's a discussion going on about gain of function, and, and Fauci is saying, ah, oh, we didn't do gain of function, and everybody said, yes, you did. So, you know, I didn't learn about gain of function when I was in medical school, and I didn't learn about it when I was a surgical resident or when I was doing my fellowship at Memorial. Gain of function didn't cross my radar, so I was like, I have to bring myself up to speed here. What is gain of function, okay? <laughs> it seems to be something that everyone's interested in. So I, I do my due diligence and I discover what is gain of function. I go back to that 2014 paper and I read under the methods section about gain of function and what do I discover? I see something that I saw but didn't recognize but now I recognize. 
the gain-of-function work that was done to create this bioweapon required fetal tissue. They needed fetal tissue to make SARS-CoV-2. Without it, they would not have been able to generate and synthesize it. And they need fetal tissue for the vaccines. And this is where the pandemic and abortion converge. Okay. At the same time that this is all going on in my (laughs) very cluttered head, um, now I'm sort of, you know, into this whole, you know, abortion pro-life movement. I've got pretty good working knowledge of it. Um, We get the news that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear an abortion case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization in Mississippi. And there are some people who think that this is an important abortion case. Well, they, there are about two or three a year, it seems. There are you know, one abortion case after another, blah, blah, blah. And it all keeps you know, bouncing around. But there was some thought that this might be the case that could change the tide. So I became familiar with the original Roe decision. And that decision, in that decision, it was stated that if the question of when life began <coughs> could be settled and the question of viability of the fetus could be settled, then the Roe decision would no longer hold. And that was how it was written in 1973. So I thought, viability. And they were going to hear the case based on viability, the Dobbs case rested on the question of viability. Whether it was legal to perform an abortion before viability or not. I began to think about that. It wasn't hard for me to formulate an argument that life begins at conception. I think everybody understands that. Mm -hmm. But I was like, okay, so I can just put that aside. That's not something I have to think hard about. But I do have to think hard about the question of viability because the arguments have been that abortion should be legal until the point of viability. Well, we know that the, the point of viability has changed. When I was young, <coughs> Jackie Kennedy had a baby that was premature and died. But I think it was only a month premature. So back in the day when I was raised, you might be able to deliver a baby at eight months that survived, but you could never deliver a baby at seven months that survived. Now, the needle has moved because of technology. Viability has moved. Sure. Okay? And so what was not viable 50 years ago is viable now, and who knows where we would go in the future. And so the viability, but it, no one would argue that the fetus is not viable at, say, and, and just to clarify, months. viability means the, the, the ability, ability to, to survive outside of the womb. That's the way it was described in terms of the fetus. Okay. The but you're 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 on to something because the question is, you're alive, can you continue to live right. under changed circumstances? Okay. Right? That's viability. That's yes. really what so I was out on one of my five mile walks one day and I was thinking about viability and all of a sudden I was like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Stop the camera. Um, viability applies to people outside the womb as well. As a surgeon, as a trauma surgeon, I'm like, there are all kinds of people who are alive one minute and 
alive but not viable the next on the battlefield perfectly healthy strapping young man like yourself gets shot in the chest you're alive you've got not me yeah (laughs) 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 you but you're not viable i can't save you you're not viable you're alive but you're not viable your circumstances have changed someone who is dying of cancer you know stage four cancer they're alive they're not viable so you're not going to resuscitate them you have patients who are brain dead they're on ventilators they could be on ventilators for years they're alive they're not viable when i was a second year resident i was working in the cardiothoracic surgeon one night i was asked do i want to go do a harvest oh yeah sure you know i'm up for anything yeah i ended up cutting out the heart of a 17 year old boy that night he tried to kill himself ran into a tree brain dead the rest of him is perfectly fine his parents agreed to donate his body okay all of his organs wow. and i was on the the heart transplant team and i was the one who was given the knife to cut out his heart he was perfectly alive who knows how long he would have lasted but he was dead when i cut out his heart so i thought viability <coughs> is not an inherent characteristic of the fetus you know at a certain age of gestation it is a description for living human beings under changed circumstances so the fetus is perfectly viable if you just leave it alone if you drag it out of the womb like putting a gunshot to your head right you know you you might not live very long the fetus is not going to live very long but the fetus is alive so I thought, I think that's a good argument for viability. Now, you remember from algebra, when you have a factor on both sides of the equation, so on this side of the equation, we have the unborn, and on this side of the equation, we have the born. And if viability applies to both, depending on their circumstances, viability drops out it of the equation. Out, yep. So viability is no longer an issue, and I thought, I think that's a good argument. And then the third thing I thought of was that, with this argument that, you know, the country is not really involved in, you know, the the woman's pregnancy beginning at the moment of conception or early on. I mean, yeah, we train OBGYNs to take care of women who are pregnant, but we, the government, we, the people, don't get involved in your pregnancy. And then I thought, wait a second, folks. (laughs) Wait a second. Wrong. I remember the question of thalidomide. Do Do you know about thalidomide? I, so, I don't. Okay, so thalidomide was a sedative that was developed in Germany. And it was very effective, they discovered, in helping women with morning sickness. Morning sickness is no fun, let me tell you. So here's a drug, okay, you take thalidomide, and it will help your morning sickness. And it did. But about two years into the widespread distribution of thalidomide in Europe, doctors began saying that women who had taken thalidomide were giving birth to these flipper babies. They had like little flipper arms and no legs and wow. actually Call the Midwife had a special um, <coughs> you know, episode on thalidomide. And so when these dots were connected by a woman at the FDA because thalidomide was being applied as for use in the United States, she said, nope. This looks like it causes birth defects. And from that moment on, the FDA began a regulatory principle in which all drugs had to prove that they were not teratogenic, that is, causes birth defects, b- 
beginning at the moment of conception, especially during the first three weeks when all the organs are being formed. And the FDA has been doing that ever since. So I pulled off the FDA regulations, the current regulations, they go on and on and on and on. All these things that the drug companies have to do to have their drugs approved to prove that the drugs don't harm the fetus, especially during the first three weeks of life. And the government funds this by the hundreds of millions of dollars, and the pharmaceutical companies spend hundreds of millions of dollars doing this, and the president signs off on it. And I thought, two of our three branches of government are very much involved in protecting the health and well-being of the unborn child, beginning at the moment of conception, and the rest of the country is behind them, and we fund this every year. Right. So I said to myself, I think an argument can be made that we are very much involved in protecting the life of the unborn child and that we, that we hold that as a high value. So after having formulated those arguments, I decided to write the book, The Viability of Roe. And through can't wait my, to read it. This my, is also fascinating. I'm like blown, like it's, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> okay, so I'm involved in all this patriot stuff. I've got the COVID thing going on and anti-vaxxers, <laughs> biowarfare, yeah. <laughs> abortion. Uh, and and one one thing leads to the next. The next thing I know, I'm talking to doc, uh, to an attorney, Robert Marshall, who has a history of writing amicus briefs to the Supreme Court. So I get in touch with him, and I said, um, you know, Bob, can I talk to you about my argument about viability? He said, oh, sure. So This is amazing, by the way. I know part of this. It's amazing. So I have a conversation with him, and he goes, I think you got something there. He said, I'd like to put that in my brief because he's going to submit an amicus brief in the Dobbs case to the Supreme Court. And I said, sounds good to me. So he sends me his brief, and I look it through, and I go, thank you very much. And I thought to myself, I'm going to write this book now. If, if Marshall's going to put it in a brief, I need to put it in a book. So in the introduction of my book, I was very um, cognizant of wanting to thank him to, for allowing me to have this conversation and for him to put this argument in. So I put it in. There it is, The Viability of Roe. And when several weeks ago I woke up uh, to find that my phone had turned into a mushroom cloud, because okay? <laughs> <laughs> the decision uh, was leaked and the Supreme Court overruled Roe, um, I downloaded the draft and I read the draft decision. I was like, what's their argument? What's their argument? And there it was, the top of page 45, and on and on and on and on. So I was like, okay, we did it. That's great. We did it. It's amazing. Which meaning, that what, what you're saying is they referenced your oh, no, 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 reasoning? No, 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 no. They, I, I believe, I, I'm, I'm having this as a thought. I, there's no way at this point um, that we can have the discussion as to upon what basis did the justices overturn Roe. Right. But if you look at the decision, the decision appears to be very concordant with the arguments that I gave. And in the conclusion of my book, I, uh, and I go on and on about the abortion bill, too, in New Jersey. I'm like, sure. you know, this is all fetal tissue, by the way, having to do with the pandemic and all that, so just, you know, fair warning. But at the end, I said, look, it's going to be really important if the Supremes are going to overturn Roe, they have to be given a graceful way to do so. They're not just going to say we were wrong. Right. They have to be given an argument that they can refer to based on new information. So I put forth a pretty good, sharp chapter on why life begins at birth. That was easy. 
I put forth the my argument about viability, which had never been raised before. And I put forth the historic uh, body of knowledge that the entire country was very much uh, aligned uh, and endorsed the preservation of life beginning at the moment of conception. And that it wasn't in the Constitution, and that I probably it was a fair bet that the Supremes were sick and tired of hearing abortion issues, and that if they could throw it back to the states, they would. Sure. And that's, that's what it looks like they've done. This is what they did, yeah. That's what I think. Wow. wow. That, I mean. But that leads us back to the convergence of using fetal tissue to do this kind of work. Um, it's evil. It's evil. It's evil. It's, yep. it's, Everything we, comes we, full yep. circle. We've been saying this on the show for, I think, since day one. This is the, the fight that we're in, the war that we're in with the biological warfare. Even It, it yeah. comes out to, uh, it's not right-left, it's not Republican-Democrat, it's good evil. Specifically, it's tyranny and genocide. Tyranny yeah. and genocide, yeah. Okay, that's what we're up against. That's no, true. And it used to be... a link for this. <clears throat> Could we? Are we not on Oh, you know what? Me? It's really interesting. When I first pulled that off, you know, it was just like, you just go right to PubMed. <coughs> then, maybe about six months later after I... Now you need a, it, a There are these disclaimers all about, <laughs> oh, oh, this was wow. not the work that yeah. created the spike protein. I'm like, yeah, we get disclaimers on, on this show all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like COVID <right>. disclaimers. <laughs> it's You're a day late and a dollar short, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay? Yeah. Wild. Um, so where do we go from here? I think that's the question. Yeah. Where do we as a nation, the nation is under attack, right? Remember yes. those famous words? The nation is under attack. Where do we go from here? Knowing what we know now, um, when I was at uh, Memorial, uh, Murray Brennan was chief of the surgical oncology uh, service, very formidable intellect. And he would walk up and down the corridors at Memorial and he would say, if you're not part of the solution, you're, you're part, part of the problem. problem. Yep. And there we have it. You've got to be part of the solution. Now, you don't necessarily have to go out there and, and do something grand, but doing nothing is not an option. You've got to do something. And just begin by thinking it through. Yep. Begin by thinking it through, whatever your particular issue is. And then you've got to do something. Otherwise, they're going to run us ragged. I think that's part of the mission of this show is to just inform people or at least, at least give them a different side, a different angle, a different opinion, a different yeah. view, something. And a reason to act. And a reason to act. And a Absolutely. reason to act. Yeah. Think yeah. it through. Don't believe a word. I say this what Selenko says all the time. Don't take my word for it. You know, <laughs> yeah. Do your own due diligence. But I would say... I'm pretty credible. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty I credible. Say, needless to say, yes. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. so, you know, you, you don't have to bet the farm on anything that I say, but um, I would strongly encourage you to do your own investigation about the information that I've shared and do something, not nothing. Because if we continue to do nothing, we're done for. We have to do something. Yeah, I mean, I think we're watching it. We're seeing it happen. We're see it. The unfolding of misery is is, is it's terrible. I mean, yeah, it is. From disregard COVID and disregard everything else, it's just everything that's happening is mm -hmm. you can't even afford gas anymore. 
You know, I mean, right. it's terrible. Right. And so the question is, okay, so let's let's rewind the tape a little bit, go back to the beginning because we were out sure. eating popcorn. <laughs> when, you know, when when the first scenes were rolling, what are the <clears throat> first scenes? Why would they want to kill us? Why do you think? Any ideas? I have some ideas, but I'm, I'm <laughs> well, going to get you. I'm going to get your juices going. Control. Okay. Okay. Why? Yeah, but why? Like, uh, yeah, I, why? I, I've I've asked that question quite a bit because I'm I've read um, mm-hmm. what is it? The Georgia Georgia Guidestones. Yeah. Georgia Guidestones right. is That's saying that uh, the the overall plan that they mm-hmm. wants um wants the population to be 500 million. Okay. I never understood that. I don't. I don't know why. Yeah. Like, especially if you're making money off of people. Okay. Um, seems Any ideas, low. Jasmine? Any ideas why? No, I'm kind of stumped now myself. <laughs> okay, so let me put forth a hypothesis. Okay. <laughs> Please, by okay. all means. You can't control. If what you want to do is control people, it's really hard to control 7 billion people. True. Okay, that's too many people to control. If what you want is to control people. So you want to reduce the population because if what you want to do is control them, you need to get a manageable number um, under your under the reins. Secondly, and this has to do with the question of money and currency. So it's a little bit esoteric, but not so. Um, money is gold or silver. Everything else is debt. So the, all the paper, you know, all the paper money and all the digits, that's just made up stuff. Mm-hmm. Real money is gold or silver. Mm-hmm. There's no counterparty risk. I have a gold coin. You've got a cow. I'm going to give you the gold coin. You're going to give me the cow. Okay. There's no counterparty risk. With money in the bank, the bank could close. Mm-hmm. Right. There could be a default. All of that, the government might not be able to pay Social Security. Right. The union may not be able to pay your pension. The government may not be able to pay its bonds to the world. Well, what if you've printed, you owe $30 trillion, this is the government, our government today, $30 trillion, and your unfunded liabilities are $500 trillion, I mean, more money than you can imagine. And what if this is true for all the countries in the world? They have more debt than they can pay. Sure. And they know, based on history, that if what you're doing is printing currencies, you're not using money. It's not, not money-backed currency, I mean gold-backed currency. It's just money. They know that typically you get 50 or 60 years out of what's called a fiat currency, and then the thing explodes. They've pushed it because they could push it. The, the dollar is the world's reserve currency. But I think that they knew probably many years ago, but probably 20 years ago, they knew that this thing was going to blow sky high. The dollar. Currencies. Fiat currencies were going to blow. You would get into hyperinflation like Zimbabwe or Venezuela or Turkey, what have you, and you would no longer be able to pay your bills, your debts, your obligations. Well, if I owe you $100,000, okay, and you think, oh, Mom, she's a surgeon, okay? She's good for her $100,000. Okay? <laughs> why she needs $100,000, I don't know, but okay. She wants to fight a war in Iraq, okay? So I'm going to give her $100,000 because everybody wants to fight a war in Iraq. 
and all of a sudden I can't pay you your hundred thousand. If you're dead, I don't owe you that money, do I? No. So my hypothesis is they want us dead because they know they can't pay the bills. So it's a combination, I think, of wanting to con- get a manageable group controlled, vaxxed, chipped, nanoparticle, whatever, compliant, like the CCP, social credit scores, all of that, everybody else dead. And then, voila, we won't have a problem with inflation <coughs> because we will have created by genocide a huge deflation. Then we don't have to pay the bills. Yeah, I mean, it, so it sounds like uh, if you if you want to live, take the vaccine. Which will kill you. Which will kill you. Yeah. Which will control you or enable them to kill you at will. Right, or they'll target, they'll pick the 500 men. Who knows? I mean, I'm. this is a roughed draft hypothesis, yeah, but yeah. it's what makes sense. It does. It, I, don't, now, I don't discount it, no. Right, okay, so... Now, you know, Mike Tyson said everybody's got a plan until they get hit, yeah. right? So I think these globalists, these people with this great plan for genocide and you know, bioweaponry and vaccines and so forth, got hit. They got hit with half the population in the United States that don't intend to be vaccinated. They got hit by millions of people who are done with the tyranny, done with the coercion. They know what sex they are. They know what sex their children are. They don't have any part of this nonsense. And so there's big pushback. And when there's pushback, there's there's more well, that, pushback. Yeah, yeah, when you call yeah. it when you call a, a parent a terrorist, a domestic yeah. terrorist, right? Yeah, I'd imagine. Right. So we're now in a pitched battle, and I think that what's going on in Ukraine, I think that we're now headed to a very hot war, a very hot war. They've lost the bioweapon warfare, although I don't think that will end in a draw. Okay. It might not end in a draw. Okay. I mean, it's very possible. If I was running the show and I was one of these bioterrorist guys, okay, we were in the group, I would be like, okay, SARS didn't work and the vaccine didn't work. We've got to kill these people. We have to kill them quick, okay, because we are running out of time here. What else you got there in that BSL? Well, they, they, they moved up. <laughs> they moved up the, whatchamacallit, the, uh, the uh, what is it called? The alert? No, the, the UN. Um, oh, the WHO. The 2030? Yeah. Now it was like they moved it closer or something like that. Did, Did didn't you read that? Yeah, I thought, well, I thought they like le- they lessened mm. the time or something like that. Oh, well, the WHO. The, the they, you're yeah. talking about, wait, are you talking about the meeting that they just recently had? Right, weren't they? Well, I wasn't specifically talking about that, but okay. yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> I don't even know all the details with it. I haven't even had a chance to look into it, but I heard that they were meeting to discuss health goals and the vaccine. So are are you familiar? Yeah, the WHO has maneuvered. This is a bureaucracy. And I think they're trying to make it mandatory? They've maneuvered into creating a treaty. Yes, that's what it was, a a treaty. Of of an actual world health. Uh, so the World Health Organization, a bureaucracy, mm-hmm. is now entering into a treaty. The treaties are between sovereign nations. Mm-hmm. Okay? Right. Now, World Health Organization has now superseded sovereign nations, is now engaging with Biden's approval into a treaty with the United States and other sovereign nations to supersede in all things having to do with health and pandemics. Which you know who ultimately 
that comes down to is isn't Bill Gates the largest contributor to the WHO? He's one of them. That's a lot of power for one guy to control the world health. Okay, so let me give you some good news. (laughs) What I think is good news. It's kind of it's kind of it's kind of macabre. It's it's a bit macabre, but I could use it. (laughs) um, Let's think about Israel. So back when I was, you know, deep into trying to sort out what's going on with COVID, I saw that Israel had been selected as the first nation to be completely vaccinated, mm-hmm. and that Netanyahu had cut a deal with Pfizer. The Pfizer was going to come in and vaccinate everyone in Israel. And then I thought, oh dear, this is biowarfare, and the vaccines are bioweapons as well. And it occurred to me that Israel had been targeted for a Holocaust. I've never even thought of that like that. Yeah. Well, Zelenko has said that as well. And I thought, if I, nobody, country doctor, can have as a hypothesis that Israel was targeted for a Holocaust, then Mossad knows about it. Oh, yeah, of course. And I'm like, I don't want to be on the wrong side of Mossad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So Bill Gates, I don't care where he lives, okay? I don't care how far underground he is. Mossad will find him. Yeah. If it comes down That's to it, Mossad will find him. Wow. Yeah, I never even yeah. thought of it as like a second Holocaust. It is. And Zelenko actually um, spoke to a group of lawmakers in Israel wow. and said, do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you've done? Yeah, the word is out. So, um, I don't think they're going to get it. I think they're going to try. Like I say, I don't think this is going to end in a draw. I think it's probably going to end in a very, very, very hot war. Hyperinflation, the whole thing. I mean, this is just going to get... I mean, we're getting there. Bad and bad and bad and bad. We're getting there. We have a covenant with God. Israel has a covenant with God. Um, I think you need to ask the question, do you believe in God? Ask the question. And if the answer is yes, then I think you need to ask... What does God want from you? <laughs> okay? Because it's not... If you think that there is a God, that God wants something from you. Yeah. I would say figure that out and show up for your part of the job. Well, I think that's what we're trying to do here. It makes me feel good to do this, to get this information out. It really yeah. does. You know, I mean that wholeheartedly. And thank you so much for doing that. You're um, is, uh, is there anything else you want to hit on? I'm just taking everything. Yeah, I'm kind of blown this away. Was, yeah, me too. <laughs> I really am. Hold on. Me too. Um, this was just such a fantastic discussion. <clears throat> you really brought a lot of things to light that neither of us and many people weren't really aware of. You know, um, yeah, it's very concerning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, given your you know expertise in the matter and. But even just how you were able to connect these dots, I'm blown away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm I'm absolutely, you know, in awe. But yeah, this is information that people need to be aware of. You know, um, and as we were saying yeah. just earlier, you mm-hmm. know, uh, you post one thing and all of a sudden yeah. you're shadow banned. Yeah. Um, try and connect the dots yourself. That's what I would urge your listeners and viewers to do. So, for instance, if the school board has some kind of a, a notebook, you know, where they're, they're referencing how they want to do this, that, and the other, where did that come from? Who funded that? 
who approves that? Who's approving it now? Right. Yeah. Get in right, front of exactly. your school board. Ask them. Follow the money. Yep. Follow exactly. the paper. We've been okay. saying that since day yeah. one. Follow the money. Follow the money. And follow the paper trip. Where did it come from? Like, who was the committee? Who was the head of that committee? Yeah. Who decided that you should teach nine-year-olds about anal sex? Which, it's Planned Parenthood is funding uh, the curriculum changes in New Jersey. And it was... Yeah. A lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were responsible for, you know, the sex ed portion of the curriculum and... You know, I don't know how that. I don't know how that's how that's how any parent mm. would be okay with that. They're not. Oh, they're we not. Went, they're some not. are. Uh, some are, and it's sad that some are. But mm-hmm. I want uh, a previous guest that we had on here, Jen Mess, had to me what yeah. I thought was one of the greatest mm-hmm. um, solutions to that kind of problem. Right. Instead of an opt out, mm-hmm. have an opt in. Yeah. So it's a, not an automatic teaching of your to your kids you have to have your kid opted in i think the fear of that with the 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 they and the board of eds is their class size is going to be diminished and if the class size is diminished the taxes should be diminished i agree with that i agree with well i meant i meant i meant like for the opt for the opt-ins like that class that's teaching Mm -hmm. anal sex anal sex to nine-year-olds yeah could only probably be like five kids out of however many i feel like this the class size would be smaller because i don't think any parent in their right mind would say of course i want my kid to learn that well you know remember the movie schindler's list at the end you know where schindler is given this ring and you know he's lamenting i could have done more i could have saved more um and uh the response is the jewish tradition is if you save one person you save humanity so we no, really just great. need to save one. I mean, if if one person, you know, saves their their nine year old child from learning about anal sex, they'll learn about it. They'll learn about it. You know, hopefully at a time when they can reject it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's not what I want to do. Or yeah, that's what I want to do. Okay, but I'm an adult. I'll make that decision for myself. You know, but right. save the children from this horror. If all we do is save one person, just save one. We've saved humanity. Uh, we're working on it. I know I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm. I'm. I don't even have mm-hmm. kids, and I'm. I, it, it drives mm-hmm. me nuts to to see what they're doing because they're creating an army of desensitized, oh, confused. Terrible. It's heartbreaking. Uh, um. Um. Uh, robots. Really. I mean, oh, they're just they're, they're just drones. And uh, yeah, you know. I just. This don't is understand. what Mao did. This is what Mao did in the Cultural Revolution. Sure, yeah. Okay, this that's is exactly what, that's what, what uh, in the movie there's actually a woman that talks about that briefly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I would recommend seeing it um, for yeah. sure. Yeah. I, I think you should watch. It. I think everyone should watch. It, as a matter yeah. of fact, it's. Um, well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to. Thank you for coming. Thank really, you thank for you so much. Coming I mean, here and stories. Yeah. <laughs> I just, my this was mind amazing. was blown. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I couldn't, you know, I couldn't listen more intently. Mm. I know. Like I was just <laughs> hanging on to every word. I mm. cannot wait to listen. You know. Oh yeah, I'm gonna. To this, I, I usually watch these really things like dissect. four or five times yeah. oh, before they're out. So yeah. yeah. Um, and again, thank you, Dr. Kathleen mm-hmm. Ruddy, so much. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Yes, thank you so much. You're welcome. You're very welcome.